0: Welcome to Countries That Don't Exist Anymore, the podcast that looks at history's national one-hit wonders, the Chesney Hawks of nation-states. This time, we look at the first Countries That Don't Exist Anymore country, which could also be considered a cult, the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom of Great Peace. Hey, oh, sounds peaceful. Which led to one of the most bloody civil wars in Chinese history, with 20 million dead. Oh.
1: Countries that don't exist anymore They used to exist but not anymore Now you know what this podcast is for It's countries that don't exist anymore What was the Taiping
0: Heavenly Kingdom? The Taiping Heavenly Kingdom was a state founded during a rebellion against the Chinese Qing Dynasty during the 1840s and 1850s How long did the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom last? About 14 years from 1851 to 1864 How large
1: was the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom?
0: At its peak, it controlled perhaps as much as a third of China, with its base in the southeast. This included the major city of Tanjing, which had been the old Ming capital. The Taiping Heavenly Kingdom contained 30 million people, which represented 10% of China's population of 300 million people at the time. Pretty incredible for a cult.
1: Who was the leader of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom?
0: Hong Quan, a young man from a hacker family that had fallen on hard times, Hong hoped to enter the Chinese civil service, but sort of accidentally instead formed a cult that almost conquered China.
1: I am the Hong and,
0: and that's a Chesney Hawks callback, which is more than Chesney Hawks ever gets. What have you ever done, Ed?
1: Nothing. Who were the hacker?
0: The main culture in China were the Han. Hong was ethnically Hakka, which means guest people. This is because the Hakka immigrated into southern eastern China from the north 800 years before, and no one had quite got over it. As such, the Hakka were viewed with some hostility and had a low rank in society, and that's what happens when you outstay your welcome. Dave, is your brother ever going to get off our sofa and get a job? He's having a rough time, Donna. He's only going to
1: stay with us while he gets himself together. Dave, it's been 800 years. Look, I'll,
0: I'll tell you what. If he's not out of here by the next Ice Age, I'll have a word. So to improve his prospects, Hongzhu Quan had to memorise the works of Confucius and pass the imperial exam. Now, this was a way of getting into the Chinese bureaucracy and one of the few ways people from relatively humble backgrounds or low caste could make it. But it wasn't easy. Of all the people who took the exam, only 1% ever made it add in the suffocating pressure of family expectations on his back, and what we're talking about here is an emotional trip to the little town of Stressville, Alabama. But Hong was no slouch. In fact, he did pretty well. He passed the first two tests with just the third to go, which he... Come on, Hong man, I believe in you. Failed. So he travelled back to his family home in Guangzhou near Hong Kong to take the test again. It's like X Factor. If you fail the audition in London, move to Liverpool, disguise yourself with a fake curly wig, slap on some permatan, and give it a go.
1: Warning! This episode may be culturally insensitive to Liverpudlians.
0: Now, Guangzhou was a port, which meant lots of trade coming in from the West. At this time in Chinese history, the imperialist British were trying to push a dark, nefarious, insidious product on China to destabilise its society. Christianity. Ha No, I'm kidding. Opium.
1: Why was the West trying to make all of China opium addicts?
0: Well, China had loads of products that powers like Britain really wanted. Their porcelain was all the rage, great furniture, vases, silks, spices, tea. Britain wanted it all, but there was a catch. China didn't feel they needed any British goods. Not even chocolate hobnobs? Nope wagon wheels no no biscuits at all but they did like opium if they like opium they should try ginger nuts very addictive well not as addictive as opium but actually the other import was christianity hong heard the words of a christian missionary and was given a pamphlet which he stuffed in his pocket to pretend to read later like with all pamphlets but that pamphlet proved to be one of the most deadly in history even more deadly than the medieval pamphlet telling you how to
1: import your own Mongolian gerbils and any diseases they might carry and mega-gross and work from the comfort of your own hovel.
0: Anyway, Hong failed his exams again and in a life seeming to share something in common with Arnold J. Rimmer and the astro-navigation exam he falls into what seems like a psychotic stupor and has a long series of feverish dreams. In these dreams, he takes a trip to the land in the east, which I guess is a land in the west to us, where he's given a new heart and meets an old man with a golden beard who tells him he's his father. He gives him a sword and tells him that demons are plaguing the land. With the help of his brother, who he's also just met, he must defeat the king of hell. In his dream, he then goes and defeats the devils, marries and has a son. After weeks in bed, Hong wakes up and tells his family about the dream. Everybody thinks he's nuts. Not least because he's decided to give himself a new title. Heavenly King, Lord of Kingly Ways. He then takes the exam again. Oh, come on, Hong, I believe in you. And fails. Uh. He should have come back with the title, Studious King, Lord of Effective Revision Timetables. Initially, he's not too sure what to make of all this, but then he finds the religious pamphlet and starts to make connections. In a typical downer way, the pamphlet calls China an apocalyptic wasteland, does seem to square with the opium dependency found all around. Hong connects his vision with the teachings in the pamphlet, and for him, it all seems to make perfect sense. The father in the dream was God. Hong's brother was Jesus Christ, and the King of Hell was the snake in the Garden of Eden. Therefore, Hong must be the Son of God. Makes sense when you think about it.
1: Yeah, I think it makes sense when you don't think about it. I am the Hong and the
0: Exactly. Hong tries to spread this message and, amazingly, it starts to catch on. Hi, would you like to take a free personality test? Oh, right. Sounds like a bit of fun. Is that what you guys are all about then? Personality tests? Yes, personality tests.
1: Yes, yes, yes. And the fact that you're infested with the tormentors of ancient aliens.
0: Oh, that sounds a bit weird. Did I mention
1: the personality test is free?
0: Oh, I like free. Lovely. Hong gets disciples who join him as he goes on his tour to preach the word. While he works on the new religious text, his followers sell paints and brushes to pay their way. The group calls itself the God Worshipping Society, and it grows in popularity attracting thousands of converts.
1: Why was the God Worshipping Society so
0: popular? While his story may seem nuts, it's not as simple as people just taking his word for it. Members weren't necessarily joining up just because they wanted to maximise their God worshipping. Remember, Hong was from the hacker people, who generally chafed under their low status. Hong's offering was about changing a social order in which they were getting a really raw deal. In his teachings, Hong rejected many Confucian ideals around family, social structure and the elite. For example, under the Confucian ideals, if you're an unmarried man without children, you're essentially worthless.
1: Yeah, sounds like my mum has been reading Confucius.
0: Yeah, right, Phil. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The problem for lots of Chinese men of middling or low status is that it wasn't unusual for wealthy Chinese men to take five or six wives, meaning uneven distribution of wives, leaving many men resentful that there were no available wives. In that sense, the God-worshipping society may have been the first incel group.
1: This redistribution of wives thing would never work. It's sixth form politics. What these lefties don't understand is that the wealthy in Chinese society weren't wife hoarders, they were really more wife creators. And actually, what a lot of the lefties don't understand is that people lower down would often have trickle off wives from the higher up in society. That, of course, is the trickle down wife effect that the
0: lefties pretend isn't there. So what was Hong's religion? It was a blend of the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament with a little Confucianism thrown in. It's China after all, you've got to have a little Confucianism. It also had just a little hint of proto-communism emphasising that property was to be shared and perhaps crucially followers were promised free land. That's quite a draw. Hey peasant too, what's all gonna fuss about? Hello, peasant one, that's Ong. He claims to be the son of God and brother of Jesus. He's going to defeat the king of hell with a magic sword.
1: (laughs) Sounds like a right maniac.
0: He's also offering free land.
1: Free land, you see? Oh, that's interesting. Well, in that case... Damn you, king of hell! Magic Jesus brother man, going to get you!
0: So, now, at first this was all about the worshipping God bit, and the general heavenliness. But things got increasingly more violent when Hong increasingly identified the devils to be vanquished with the Manchu people.
1: Who were the Manchu people?
0: The Manchu were a people that had conquered the Chinese Ming Dynasty in the 17th century, and had established their own Qing dynasty. But despite having ruled for 200 years, they were still regarded as foreigners. It really takes the Chinese a long, long time to come round to people.
1: Sir, your daughter and I have been faithfully together for 20 years. We've had four children together and we've voted the most stable relationship by Monogamy magazine. Now can I marry her? No way, lover boy! I
0: know you're fly by night games, player. I got my eyes on you, flesh in the pain. Although originally nomadic horseback riding ass kickers from Manchuria in the northeast, the Manchu had settled comfortably into Chinese civilization and had taken a liking to it. That happens to every nomadic horsey type that conquers China. At first, they're all like...
1: I bathe in the blood of my
0: enemies. But within a few years, it's like... Can I have some chocolate sprinkles on that? The Manchu had really taken to Chinese ways, even championing the civil service exams that Hong had failed to pass. At their height, French philosopher Voltaire had praised the Qing for having the most effectively organised government the world had ever seen. So they were pretty civilised. Although a small ethnic group, the Manchu had held onto power from the majority Han Chinese by keeping top positions of power for themselves. As a visual reminder of domination, the Qing required subjects to wear a ponytail on their otherwise shaved heads. Barbershop, China, 1830.
1: So what can we do for you today? I don't know, something a bit different. I'm looking to reinvent myself, maybe, you know, shake things up a bit. Something that says I'm inferior to my Manchu overlords, and I'm good with that. Right, let me just
0: give it a little bit of a snip. Snip, snip. Okay, you're done. In summary, because the demons of Hong's dreams had taken the form of the Manchu and their hold on power, the power that Hong couldn't get a piece of himself, establishing the heavenly kingdom meant some Old Testament smiting of their asses. Central to his new culture, Hong encouraged an explicit rejection of Qing norms. So, to mark out his followers, their ponytails were chopped off and hair was grown long and lustrous, or grown a bit at the side and then combed over. Plus, they got to wear a red turban as a symbol of allegiance to Hong. So, what was the result of this, those people are literally the devil talk? Well, one of the bloodiest civil wars in Chinese history. Within two years of its foundation, the Society of God-worshippers was less about praying and more about overturning the status quo, having whipped up hundreds of thousands of Chinese into open rebellion. And they had a ton of momentum. By 1853, Hong had captured the Ming capital of Nanjing. Hong's troops were puritanical stormtroopers who went on the rampage, burning Confucian texts, pulling down idols and effigies, and destroying ancient temples. This was the ISIS of its day. But, should we be too judgmental? After all, some of Taiping's policies don't seem too bad at first glance. Slavery
1: was banned. The opium that had caused so much damage was outlawed. As were arranged marriages. Women were put on a more equal footing with men. Do you know what, this doesn't sound too bad after all.
0: Actually, it's not all great. Sex wasn't allowed without express permission, even amongst married couples. Mm. It was no sex before victory. Well, that's not ideal and alcohol was completely banned.
1: That is outrageous! I'm against it. I'm against it too. Cheers! Taxi! To the airport! One way tickets to Las Vegas, please! hey, hey.
0: Just as Hong was issuing commandments about everyone being pure and... Oh, God, my head. Just as Hong was issuing commandments about being pure and virtuous, the man himself didn't seem to be following the programme, just like any self-respecting cult leader. While his followers were living the life of Puritans... Hong had entered Nanjing riding on a yellow silk seated sedan carried by 16 bearers, accompanied by beautiful women twirling yellow umbrellas for some reason. He then set himself up in a luxury palace in Nanjing, enjoyed his large harem and kept away from public appearances. Within the palace, no men were allowed except for Hong, obviously, and he employed a staff of all female officials and servants. Apparently, he was obsessed with his hygiene and demanded a constant supply of clean towels. And this special treatment wasn't new. Even while out in the wilderness in the early days of his cult, he lived apart in a small hut that he called the Dragon Palace. But after all, he was the son of God. We all remember the Bible story.
1: And Jesus did poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered unto him, and said, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt knowest hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet, for thee art greater than me. And Jesus saith unto Simon Peter, Good point.
0: So while we try not to editorialise here at countries that don't exist anymore, it's fair to say that Hong had gone totally batshit.
1: But are you saying that if you had been in Hong's situation of absolute power, you would have done things completely
0: differently? Well, I mean, it's just so tacky. Pimp Palace, sex on tap. Luxury lifestyle while your followers live like peasants in the dirt, twirling yellow umbrellas.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're right. Lose the umbrellas.
0: Well, yeah. Or, you know, make them red. So Hong goes nuts and the whole thing collapses, right? Actually, no. See, this wasn't a one-man show. And while Hong was the figurehead of the operation, there were other key figures taking on the actual administrative and military operations. And this is one of the reasons that Western powers didn't initially intervene in this rebellion, because... Which side should they back, the Qing or the Taiping? On the face of it, the choice seems obvious. Established 200-year-old dynasty or religious nut with hygiene issues. But Hong's cousin, Hong Rengang, took the reins as an effective prime minister. What he succeeded in doing was turning the Taiping from a revolutionary movement into a possible alternative state. His plan was to solidify the movement, not only by turning Hong's gibberings into a proper doctrine, but also by modernising the Taiping state, including a banking system, railways, newspapers and post offices. His belief was that if they could Westernise, they'd get recognition as a stable, reliable state, and this wasn't a bad idea. In fact, Western missionaries in the merchant classes of Shanghai were initially enthusiastic about all of this. For one thing, this rival Chinese state was professing to be Christian, which got a lot of people on side. Even the Times of London suggested that the Taiping were the new face of China. But for all Hong Rengang's good PR work, the problem seemed to be King Hong's rather improvised take on Christianity in letters exchanged with the london missionary society hong is told that much of the bible should be taken figuratively hong replies back saying nope literally they also point out that god had one son nope says hong two sons so while the taiping are practicing a kind of christianity the fact that their christianity could well be seen as a heresy probably made them more reviled protestants meet catholics catholics Protestants, you guys have so much in common! By 1861, the British finally decided to come in on the side of the Qing, and it's not just because Hong's god complex ruffled their feathers. In fact, when the Taiping advanced on Shanghai, the western foothold in the region, they may have expected a warm welcome from fellow Christians. What they got instead were cannonballs whistling past their turbans. But why? Well, it was felt that the Taiping were naturally anti-foreign. If they saw a 200-year-old dynasty as a bunch of tourists, how would they take to longer term Western influence in their affairs? And any march on the invaluable port of Shanghai was obviously a no-no. And this is probably the deal breaker. The Taiping were anti-opium. With America embroiled in a civil war, China became a more important market than ever for Britain to shift its drugs and get its finery. Sure. The Qing were not going quietly on this opium thing. In fact, they were fighting a second opium war with Western powers between 1856 and 1860. But it seemed to be a central tenet of the Taiping. The Qing weren't super keen on the opium trade. The Taiping were totally against it. So the British intervened to keep the dope flowing.
1: So you're saying at the heart of it, the glorious British Empire was basically an international criminal organisation. Well, I wouldn't
0: say that that's true, I'd just say that it's a historical fact. Ah. Now, it's time to talk about the Qing Dynasty. In order for the Taiping to go around gaining huge chunks of China, it was important for someone to get beaten pretty badly, and that was the Qing. But why were they taking such a pasting? So as we've said, when the Manchu founded the Qing dynasty, they were a powerhouse at their peak. But by the time of the Taiping Rebellion, the Qing dynasty were up against it. For one thing, it had been defeated by the British during the first Opium Wars. This caused the Qing to accept a rather humiliating peace, which saw the British establish a more permanent foothold in ports like Shanghai and Hong Kong, and a flow of opium into China, which was eating away Chinese society from the inside. A once-proud military suffered from a tax system that was unable to generate enough tax revenue to support a strong standing army. That army was stretched thin by other rebellions including a Muslim uprising. And the Opium War wasn't a one-off either. Even as the Qing were fighting the Taiping, they went back to fight against the British during a second Opium War. And if that wasn't enough, China was further destabilised by a period of famine, drought and floods. All told, China in the mid 19th century was a Biblical landscape and not the Garden of Eden type Biblical landscape on page 1 either, no, more the Armageddon landscape bit at the back near also by the same author. Little wonder that there would be a genuine desire amongst the Chinese for a heavenly kingdom of great peace. So when the Taiping were halted on their march on Shanghai, it wasn't initially the British that intervened either. No, the armies of Hong were initially repelled by American soldier of fortune, Frederick Townsend Ward, who was on Shanghai's payroll, and his army of mercenaries armed with the best of the industrial West, including modern rifles and a barrage of artillery. And despite being in an active war with the Qing, the British arrested Ward for violating neutrality in China. But as we've said, the British decided it was in their interest to snuff out these opium-hating Taiping. We can't mess with trade, you know, old boy. So Ward gets let off and sets up an army of Chinese soldiers with Western arms and training. But fearing that this might all look like Western tinkering, the army was given some distinctly Chinese marketing. Phil, any idea what the army was called? Uh, The Chinese army. Yeah, a bit more imaginative.
1: Ching the Merciless.
0: Yeah, more inspirational.
1: Um, The girl with the dragoon tattoo.
0: That's pretty good, but no, it was the ever yeah, 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 right, yeah, right. victorious army. Ever victorious army. That was going to be my next one. It was Yeah, it's yes, bingo. Those Chinese can really do names well. The Taiping were joined by two groups the Red Turban Rebels, and the Small Sword Society.
1: Hey, man, give me your wallet. Why? I've got a small sword. Ha! That's not a small
0: sword. This is a small sword. Yeah, man, it's really a very small sword. Now give me your money. Okay. Anyway, the ever-victorious army were then taken over by British commander Charles George Chinese Gordon. And his Batman, second Lieutenant Jock Fever Tree McShreps. And in case you were wondering, this was the same British Empire legend who went on to be killed in Khartoum while bravely shooting Sudanese people who wanted freedom.
1: Heroic. So the ever victorious army remain ever victorious. bulldoze the typing, and Mao's your uncle, right? Um eh, not quite. Oh. Okay. So the Ching have some breathing space go through a training montage, weaponise rice paddies, that kind of thing.
0: Um, well, it was really all of those things, but we're missing another element. You see, while the heavenly armies may have been quite happy to go around conquering things, they were pretty heavy-handed in the process. Their conquest didn't look much like heavenly peace. Villages were burnt, farmlands looted, and dikes broken, which generally added to the ongoing carnage, as floods and famine created further misery, unrest, and death and not everyone was super stoked about this. Since the Qing were nowhere to be seen, local Han gentry took matters into their own hands, raising little peasant armies and going on the offensive, and while initially 100 peasants armed with hoes were no match for Hong's forces, and were generally swatted away, these neighbourhood watch militias grew into something like proper local armies. Meanwhile, not all was heavenly in the heavenly kingdom. Hong pretty much disappeared from sight. The unifying factor of a leader with a direct line to God was lost and was replaced by infighting and factionalism. In 1856, Hong's commander-in-chief Yang Zhu Qing tried to overthrow Hong. He was defeated and thousands of his followers were killed, including the man that killed Yang which doesn't seem very fair. Anyway, Hong felt unjustly betrayed by all of this, and yet years earlier, he'd given Yang the title East King and announced that his general's words were divine. Bit of an overpromotion
1: there. Tim, just wanted to say, great job on the photocopying. Oh, thanks. I'm glad my uh, effort's are being acknowledged, boss. So great, in fact, we've decided yeah to make you a god. Uh, by the way, have you finished stapling the report? Stapling is below the divine Jim
0: Hobson, mortal, all shall kneel. Wow, where did that come from? One of Hong's best generals and most reasonable administrators, Shida Kai, a.k.a. Wing King, a.k.a. Lord of Five Thousand Years. This cult had the best names, had quite enough of this warring factionalism, and in 1857 said, bugger this, I'm off, and departed. He even wrote a resignation poem, which might have gone something like this. Dear Hong, I am gone, I am right and you are wrong. Despite parting ways, he continued to fight in the name of the Taiping elsewhere in China. He only eventually handed himself in to the Qing to spare his men's lives and he apparently stoically withstood his execution known as Slow Slicing aka Death by a Thousand Cuts The Lord of Five Thousand Years Killed by a Thousand Cuts Ow! Ah! Ah! Ow! Get on with it! But this combination of the ever-victorious army living up to their name, a reinvigorated and militarily upgraded Qing force, Western opposition, internal fighting and local resistance by the Han gentry broke the wave of the Taiping state until they were surrounded at their capital by 1864. With food running low, King Hong made a rare appearance and reassured his people that the Lord would provide manna from heaven, whereupon he pulled up and ate a weed, claiming that whatever they ate, God would turn into nutritious food and sustain them. Unfortunately, God seems to have missed the memo, and according to historical accounts, the weed was poisonous, and Hong died. Or he may have been poisoned by someone else. Either way, Hong was poisoned, and incidentally passed a poison chalice to his teenage son, the new heavenly king.
1: Here goes on. All of this starving, desperate city is yours. Nearly new.
0: But I don't want it, Father. Oh,
1: nonsense. Look at all them weeds. They could make a lovely porridge out of them weeds.
0: But I don't like weeds.
1: Oh, nonsense. They're lovely. Serve with bread and dripping. All I had when I was your age and I turned out right, didn't I? Here, look.
0: <whistles> oh. To which his followers said, A
1: teenage son. How have you got a teenage son? I thought the whole not having sex till victory was... Oh, oh no, just us.
0: The subsequent Battle of Nanjing was a total bloodbath, with three days of fierce, close-quarter fighting. Despite viewing the Taiping as you rebel scum, Commander Fang of the Qing said, I never encountered any rebels as brave and determined as these. Rebel scum. Nanjing finally fell in July 1864. The followers of Hong were offered amnesty, but, astoundingly, they went for mass suicide instead. This may be because they were true believers to the end, or because they really knew that there was not going to be any amnesty. Prime Minister Hong Rengang was given a few days reprieve to document his recollection of the events, but then they cut his literary career short by removing his head. Conclusion: One man flunking his civil service exam and forming a god-man cult kingdom seems like your typically whimsical countries that don't exist anymore story. Is this another fuller skip-with of the Republic of West Florida with whimsically unrhyming national anthems and charming skirmishes with a few sprained ankles? No, no it's not. It led to possibly the bloodiest civil war in history, with a conservative estimate of 20 million deaths. This isn't just any cult. This is like if L. Ron Hubbard had managed to found a nation. The quirky blip of history had massive, massive repercussions. Of China's 18 provinces, 16 were in some way affected. 600 cities were destroyed, even after the fall of Nanjing, little pockets of the Taiping continued the fight, but the heavenly kingdom was never to be reinstated. The Taiping Rebellion needs to be put in the context of other rebellions in Chinese history, which generally happened when the state was at its weakest. See, the Qing weren't popular, had the Taiping offered something broadly acceptable, they might have got the Han majority and external powers onside. There could have been a heavenly kingdom of China. But in a country demonstrably suspicious of outsiders, a pseudo-Christian cult which throughout Confucianism abolished property, introduced a puritanical regime, and seemed to put the hacker on top, might have been a few steps too far for most. But while Hong was the charismatic crackpot that lit the fuse, China was a powder keg of discontent from external pressures and internal discord. China was remade by 19th century industrial weaponry that swept away a system of warfare that was practically medieval. After this calamity, the order of the day was modernization of the military so that China wouldn't be gobbled up by hungry Western powers. And this rebellion crippled the Qing. They staggered on, but finally gave up the ghost in 1911. And the hacker people hardly got off lightly. The Chinese government started a policy of mass extermination, killing 30,000 hacker per day at its height. But some of the Taiping ideas around shared property and overturning the old order didn't just go away. When the Chinese Soviet Republic formed in 1931, one of the territories with the firmest support was Hacker. During the iconic Long March of 1934, 70% of the communist soldiers were Hacker, And although Hong may have been considered as a kook, the Taiping haven't been totally disowned. The heroics of Taiping General Shi Dekai was later to inspire his fellow hacker clansman Zhu Dei, who founded the People's Liberation Army and hacker people took up prominent positions in the Chinese State Communist Party. So, I guess old Hong got that civil service job after all. Did he? No. Hmm.
1: And I failed bureaucracy exams. I met a golden bearded man. He said I was divine. And to chase the devils out of China. have blue balls they did all my worry while I did the police
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Countries That Don't Exist Anymore. Next time we'll be joined by comedian and star of Radio 4's Chinese comedian Ken Cheng to talk about the Taiping and other typos. Countries that
1: don't exist anymore They used to exist but not anymore Now you know what this podcast is for It's Countries That Don't Exist (laughs)